we've got a, a quite a hefty passage in front of us this morning, um, which is a co- combination of last week's passage and also of, of this week's. Um, so forgive me if I don't dwell as much on some areas as I might have liked to. Okay? Um, I'm going to be covering it in, in four sections. We're going to be looking at Romans 8. It'd be really helpful if you can have it open. Uh, it's on page 1134 if you don't still have it open. Um, we're going to look briefly at Romans 8, 1 to 11, under the heading um, Flesh Governed. Um, we're going to look then at, I know, um, at 12 to 17, under the heading um, uh, Father God, then Future Glory um, in 18 to verse 30, and Forever Gods, as in we belong to God, uh, in uh, 31 to the end. So why don't I pray before we, before we go any further, because that's always a good start. Lord, may the words that I speak and the thoughts of all our hearts be now and always acceptable to you, O Lord, our God and our Redeemer. Make us clean in you, make us new, and help us to listen to your word, to receive it into our hearts, and to make a difference in our lives. Amen. Okay. So, in verses 3 to 9, we're living by the flesh. At the start of chapter 8, Paul describes how we are flesh-governed until God breaks the power of our sinful flesh. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. Living by the flesh is not good. Life by the Spirit, however, in verses 1 to 2 and verses 9 to 13, as a result of that, we have these powerful first two verses, verses 1 to 2. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And hence we're told in verses 9 to 11, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. And so we're called, first of all, to live by the Spirit. Not to be flesh governed, but to live by the Spirit. Verses 12 to 13, and now we get on to passage we actually are. We learn in verse 12 that we are debtors. We owe an obligation, owing more than we can ever pay because, verse 2, through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Our debt is not to the flesh. We are not to be flesh governed, but to live by the Spirit. Verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Now, the ESV has a slightly different word there. It uses the word deeds instead of misdeeds. The deeds of the body. 
And the problem is that even our best deeds, even the ones we're proudest of, quite often are tainted by our motives. For we do the things that we do not wish to do, and we do not do the things that we do wish to do. Are we acting for good and for God, or for our sinful natures and desire? In Galatians 5, verses 19 to 21, it's on page 1172, if you want to, to follow it. Uh, we see a description of the deeds Paul is talking about here. The acts of the flesh are obvious, he says. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions or divisions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. If we are going to be flesh governed, we will not be living by the spirit. Paul himself has already revealed the struggles that we all face at the end of chapter seven. Uh, it's back on page 1134. <clears throat> verses 18 to 19, for I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but I do the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. In verse 24, what a wretched man I am, he cries. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Who will rescue me, Paul writes. Paul. Now, how many of us would compare ourselves to the Apostle Paul? Paul writes, wretched man, who will rescue me? Before flowing on to chapter 8 and the promises of the Spirit to replace completely our sinful desires with those of Christ, verses 1 to 2. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. Therefore, starts verse 12. It's a consequence of that. Therefore, in light of the promises of the Spirit, we need to live by the Spirit, not by the flesh. We need to realize that God is forgiving us continually for sins throughout each day. It's, it's not as though he just forgives our big sins. There are sins daily, hourly, by the minute that he is forgiving for there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ, if we are in Christ. And that if we turn to God in prayer, he will surgically replace our sinful desires with desires for his good. You, I, cannot conquer our rage, selfish ambition, our addiction to internet porn, but God can. You cannot change your heart, but God can and will if you ask him. God can change your heart and will and surgically remove, cut out your sinful desires. Not only that, in verses 13 to 14, but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. We can call the creator of the universe Father God. Father God. Father God, we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself testifies. We are God's children, heirs of God, verses 15 to 17. We are sons of God. And all those led by the Spirit are sons of God, verse 14. We're not slaves, verse 15. No longer are we slaves to the flesh, 
nor slaves to fear, nor simply as members of God's household, which would still be far more than we deserve, for we are not worthy even to gather up the crumbs under his table. No, we are to be sons of God, not slaves. How? Verse 15, by adoption. Through the Spirit, we receive this sonship, not as slaves, but full sons. In Genesis chapter 15, verses 2 to 3, Abraham, as he's then known, talks about his sadness to God in response to God's promises because Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I will die childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliza of Damascus. You have given me no children, so a servant from my household will be my heir. Eliza is not adopted by Abraham, a servant who would be his heir. Rather, God provides not just children for Abraham and his own body, which was as good as dead, as Paul describes it in Romans 4, verse 19. But he, he provides children who become a nation, who become a people that minister to the whole world. But we are. We are adopted by God. God takes us, wretches that we are, and makes us his children. Now, um, All Saints' former curate, uh, Martinez, spoke of a friend of his, Matt, who adopted a son. And uh, this child had been, uh, this little boy had been passed from foster home to foster home to foster home. And whenever he did something naughty, Matt still had to, say, still had to punish him and, and tell him not to do these things. But he also had to tell him that he wasn't going to be given up. He wasn't going to be sent away as he had been previously for the first couple of years he still had to be told by Matt that he was part of their family and that wasn't going to change he was a son we are sons attested by the spirit verse 16 the spirit himself bears witness and testifies that we are children of God and that there can, there can therefore be no legal challenge to our sonship. It will be upheld even in the highest court. Verse 17, we are heirs by suffering. We are heirs of God and co-heirs or, or fellow heirs with Christ. And if, as part of God's family, we therefore share in Christ's sufferings, so also we share in Christ's glory. If Christ is glorified through us and through our lives, so also we will be glorified with Christ and through Christ to the glory of God the Father. When adopted into a family, we first of all take the name. That's the, the first thing that changes legally. We, we cease to be one surname and we become another. We become part of that family in name. But as we spend time with that family, as we live with that family, as we grow with that family, we start to take on the characteristics of that family. The values and the attributes become so ingrained that we become indistinguishable from natural sons. We are adopted into God's family. And as we live by the Spirit under our Father God, we should look more and more like Christ. People should be able to look at us and see Christ in us 
through us. <clears throat> and so we move on to, um, to verses 18 and onwards, to the future glory. Verse 18, our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Present sufferings and future glory. And they're incomparable. Verse 18, the Roman church was no stranger to suffering. They'd had many times of tribulation. And as Paul writes, there are Christians being persecuted. Throughout the world today, there are Christians being persecuted. We heard earlier in our prayers about the, the troubles that afflict our world, about how things are not right. And as, even as these sufferings are dreadful, even as we suffer in different ways, even as we are imperfect, and whatever our sufferings are, yet, Paul says, they are incomparable. They are incomparable. Not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. However bad the suffering is now, is not even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The glory that is to come. Creation, we're told in verse 19, waits eagerly for God's children to be revealed. I'm reminded of, um, of when... Aidan was, uh, was, was first conceived, and uh, Natalie and I hadn't been married very long. Um, uh, he, was, uh, he was conceived um, probably on the honeymoon. Um, uh, he was born nine months and two days after I got married, so, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, and we, we, we spent hours and hours going through names that we were going to, to, to give him. We didn't know it was a him, though. We had a name up until the point when he was born for a girl or a boy. God knew what he was going to be before ever he was born. Before ever he was implanted in Natalie, God knew what he would be. And I'm, the baby is already in the womb. The gender long determined, but not yet known. Creation waits eagerly for God's children to be revealed. God's children are already known to God. Already known. Long before they're ever born long before they're ever revealed to creation. They're already known to God. But creation is also, in verse 20, subjected to frustration. And in verse 21, it will be liberated from its bondage, from its corruption and decay. Imagine something like the Lake District and all its beauty and splendor. And imagine what that's going to be like without the corruption. Or imagine the top of a mountain or a lake. The beauty that we see in the world is but a poor reflection of the glory that will be revealed in Christ Jesus. Of the creation that is struggling, groaning under the sin that presses under the present suffering. It has been groaning, verse 22, as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. And it will be brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Verse 21 again. <clears throat> Present sufferings are not even worth comparing. Yet, in verse 23, we find the present waiting. We ourselves groan inwardly. How many times do, have, we, have we felt that the world is not right? That, that something should be done? That a situation is wrong? That a person is wrong? 
we groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption as sons. And in this hope, we are saved. But not because we see it. For, as it says, who hopes for what he has achieved? If you've already received it, you, do no, you no longer hope for it. Do you remember waiting for your birthday? And the, the present that, you were, that you'd, you'd asked for? Wait for your birthday. It doesn't come any quicker, though. Wait patiently. Instead, in these present sufferings, we wait eagerly with patience, verses 24 to 25. And this, this leads with our prayerful intercession. The Spirit, verse 26, helps us in our suffering, helps us in our weakness. For it says... <clears throat> We do not know what we ought to pray for. We don't know what to ask God for. How can we ask God for what we don't know we need? Until you know you need it, how do you know you need it? God knows what we need before we ever do. Before Aidan was born, Natalie and I knew some of the things that we would need for Aidan. We'd need somewhere for him to sleep. We'd need the plaster on the walls to be um, not giving off dust. We'd need um, clothing and, and we'd need nappies and things. We didn't know some of the problems we'd have, but then we're not God. We don't yet know what we need, but the Spirit who intercedes for us does. And he intercedes for us through wordless groans, it says. He searches our, hind, our hearts and knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. The Spirit intercedes for us. That Spirit that we live by if we are in Christ. For if we do not have the Spirit of Christ, we are dead. And that leads on to verses 28 to 30, which is, Two of the most powerful verses in the, in the whole of the Bible, um, <clears throat> and certainly two of the most controversial in some ways as well. Predestination. Predestination. Predestination is a doctrine that is directly biblical, designed by God for our comfort, and destined for our salvation. Predestination is God's choice because we are guilty as charged. And all who will be saved are saved by the grace of Christ, who also gives us the Great Commission. Not justice, but mercy. No one can know that they are not predestined to eternal life. The moment somebody says that they know that they're not predestined for eternal life, you know that they don't know what they're talking about. We don't know. The only person who does know is God. And God's plan is detailed. It's incredibly detailed. It's more detailed than that schedule that you drew up for the revision that you didn't do. Man is responsible for his own actions. We're told that time and time again in the scriptures. Predestination doesn't get us off the hook for being responsible for our actions. We can still be called by Christ. We can still be elect by Christ and do terrible things. And many Christians have and will. 
<clears throat> Free will is subjective. Not justice, but mercy. And so we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Verse 28. Who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What a promise. If we are in Christ, we are predestined. Nothing can shake that rock. Nothing can tear us away from God if God has chosen us. And none of us can know that God hasn't chosen us. None of us can know that God hasn't chosen our neighbor who's difficult. None of us can know that God hasn't chosen the person on the train we meet who's smelly. And it's our job to help them to know Christ so that they might know the promises in their life. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. In fact, predestination is, um, is one of the articles um, of our religion. Um, there are 39 articles, if you weren't aware of them. They're in the Book of Common Prayer. Um, and they, uh, they are things which, which we should know, uh, which we should be comfortable with. Article 17, our predestination, predestination and election. Predestination to life is the everlasting purpose of God, whereby before the foundations of the world were laid, he hath constantly decreed by his counsel secret to us to deliver from curse and damnation those whom he hath chosen in Christ out of mankind and to bring them by Christ to everlasting salvation as vessels made to honor. Wherefore, they which be endued so with, with so excellent a benefit of God be called according to the purpose of God by his spirit working in due season. They through grace obey the calling. They be justified freely they be made sons of God by adoption. They be made like the image of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. They walk religiously in good works, and at length, by God's mercy, they attain to everlasting felicity. That's one of our articles of religion. That's one of the things which we are supposed to believe, and it is a, a good promise for us. It is something which enables us to know that God is working for our glory, not that we deserve that glory but we never can. If anyone has any questions on predestination, here's some more hefty tomes. Feel free to borrow one of them afterwards. <clears throat> so we move on to... Um, uh, sorry, a, a single acorn. A single acorn can create a forest, but on, only if it goes into the ground and dies first. We don't know what is predestined for us in terms, of, in terms of throughout this world. Yet, that acorn, if you don't place it into the ground, nothing will happen with it. It will remain dead. And yet, if you put it into the ground dead, it can burst forth into an oak tree, and that oak tree will produce other acorns. <coughs> I've been listening a lot recently to, um, uh, to a guy called Keith Green, you might be familiar with a couple of his songs. He wrote um, There is a Redeemer with Melody Green, his wife. And he wrote Holy, Holy, Holy. And both these are, are ones which are, are common in our, in our hymnals. But he also wrote lots of other songs. Um, he was a really, really talented songwriter. 
and he died um, 35 years ago, two days ago. I, I sort of stumbled upon him three, three days ago or so. so um, he was only 28 when he died, and yes, he left behind a huge legacy of songs and sermons, because having come to Christ relatively late for, for someone who dies so young, he had given his life to Christ so wholeheartedly that his ministry was in everything he did. And some rather controversial lyrics in some cases. There's some great ones like Asleep in the Light, um, which talks about um, uh, how, how we can't even get out of bed, yet Christ has risen from the dead. Well worth listening to, uh, to Keith Green. Um, but when Keith Green died, as tragic as that airplane crash was, his last call to mission, the mission that he'd been calling young people to go on, because he was so full of evangelism and so full of the Spirit of God at that point, that his work took off much more than it ever would have done if he'd remained alive. Isn't that weird? That actually sometimes it's not through what we do, but what happens because of what we've done. That even a tragedy like that death, even tragedies more close to us, are ones which, which lead to greater things, to greater glory that we can ever imagine. And as a, result of, as a result of his death, there was a mission that went out. It was probably the largest mission call to missionaries ever in the world. And there are still missionaries ministering now who are in the mission field because of Keith Green's death and the message that he had given out before that. I recommend you listen to some of his songs. They're, they're, they're quite pointed. Anyway, um, we move on to, uh, to, the end of, uh, to the end of chapter 8. Um, and we come to, uh, to, to that part which I've titled Forever Gods, which does not mean that we're going to be gods, but instead that we are going to belong to God. We will be forever gods, as in we belong to him. For who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Neither death nor life, verses 35 and 38. Paul couches this in seven questions, Two each is in, in verses 31 and 35, and one in verses 32, 33, and 34. <clears throat> what then should we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger of the sword? No, he says in verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We have immunity to these things. Not that it cannot affect us in our mortal lives, but it cannot separate us from the love of God. For who is interceding for us in verse 34? Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, who died for our sins, who has already paid the price for every sin you have committed, for every sin I have committed, for the ones that 
we wouldn't want to write up on a board. For the ones that we've forgotten about and never asked for forgiveness for. For the ones which still trouble us and which we still feel guilty for or which we're still addicted to. If we live by the Spirit, we die to the flesh and Christ intercedes for us. And it makes us, verses 35 to 39, inseparable. Even in these sufferings, even in this groaning, we cannot be separated from Christ. Psalm 44, verse 22 is quoted. It's on page 569, if you want to have a look at it. In verse 36, yet for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Certainly there are places around the world that consider Christians like that at the moment. We're just owning the name of Christ. China recently re-established a, um, a, a rule that said that the 75 million um, communist members must be good Marxist atheists. China is one of the largest places where Christ is growing, where the Christianity is spreading despite the persecution, perhaps because of the persecution. For when we are persecuted, we have to cling to that which is true. We put aside that which is false. But the psalm concludes in verse 26, rise up and help us, rescue us because of your unfailing love. We become inseparable. We become more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a powerful verse. That we are so inseparable from Christ. That we are predestined, elected, called. And that we can be with Christ forever as sons of God. And nothing in creation can separate us from that. We began chapter 8 as criminals. And thanks to Jesus Christ, we end it being forever God's, belonging to him completely. From no condemnation to no separation from Christ. Nothing can separate us from the immense, intense, effective and transforming love of, God, of Christ that calls us to him and for which we have been called, elected, presented, justified and will be glorified. Read Romans 8 again over this next week. Delve into it. Look at it in more detail. Dwell on those verses and read them. Read the promises that are there. The promises of the Spirit that will live in us. That will surgically remove our flesh. Uh, our, our, our being governed by the flesh. Those promises that uh, will, will make us able to call God our Father. To call out Abba, Dad, to the creator of the universe. That will point us towards the future glory that is to come. And will therefore release the frustration that we feel at so many things in this world. And remind us that we are inseparable from God. Forever God's. Dwell on those promises as you read. And put them into your life. Let's pray.
Lord, you came down to earth to die for our sins. You were raised again, and as a result, we can be forgiven completely. Before the beginning of the world, you called us, you elected us, you chose us. Not because of anything that we've done to deserve it. Despite all the things that we've done to, to not deserve it. But you call us, Lord. And you elect us. Help us, Lord, to live that out. To become true sons. Indistinguishable from the natural son. Help us to show you out in our lives. To be little Christs. And that people will want to know you through our lives. That as we speak and as we act and as we go about our daily lives and our daily work, that you will work in us to bring your glory. That we might be justified and glorified through you and that others might also be so as well. To the glory of God the Father. Amen.